Well, good morning. I do want to uh, invite you and uh, urge you to come this evening uh, to the 6 o'clock service. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful time of, of worship, of corporate prayer, time in the Word, and then a time uh, for you to ask any questions that may be on your mind, uh, questions about the Scriptures, about uh, the Lord's teaching, and, and uh, you can be praying for me. The Lord will give me wisdom uh, to answer and to be helpful uh, to those who ask questions. So, uh, be sure to be here, not here in the sanctuary, because this is being set up for VBS, but in the chapel at 6 p.m. Last week, we continued our mini-series called What to Do About Doubt by looking at three of the most common schemes that Satan uses to prevent people from believing. So if you remember from last week, we talked about how Satan tries to distract people with superficial and shallow and silly things just to keep their minds away from the gospel, away from the most important things. And so it's really important for us to not let ourselves be distracted, but to make sure we're spending time with the Lord and in his word. He also tries to deceive people through skepticism, sophistry, and superstition. And so we must always be checking with the word of God to make sure these things are so. And third, he tries to destroy people with sin, scandal, and slander, and so we must watch our life and doctrine closely. Well, today we're going to shift now from looking at the schemes of Satan to looking at the sovereign strategies of the Savior. And there are three sovereign strategies of the Savior that I want to look at this week and next. The Lord wants to convince people by creation, consciousness, and credibility to convict people of sin by the commandments, by their conscience, and by catastrophes, and then to call people to the cross, to the church, and to the Great Commission. So his sovereign strategies are to convince, to convict, and to call. This morning we're going to be looking at that first one, his strategy to convince The Lord wants to convince people, and he uses three primary means to do so. That is creation, consciousness, and credibility. And I chose that word convinced very purposefully. It's based upon a Greek term which is used repeatedly in the New Testament to describe the evangelistic efforts of the apostles and the early church. The Greek term is the word patho, which The Lunida lexicon defines as, quote, to convince someone to believe something and to act on the basis of what is recommended to persuade or to convince. And this is the word which appears in one of the most important verses for understanding our mission in the world, and that is 2 Corinthians 5.11, where the apostle writes, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That is our mission, is to persuade or to convince people. He says down in verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what is our job as ambassadors? We are to convince people. We are to persuade people. We're trying to convince them to be reconciled to God through the gospel. 
And that word, to convince or to persuade, that Greek word patho, is one of the most commonly used words to describe the evangelistic mission and efforts of the early church. Consider, for example, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. It says in verse 2 that according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. He was reasoning, explaining, and giving evidence in order to persuade them. Chapter 18, verse 4 of Acts says that he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. There's that Greek word patho, to convince or persuade. He was reasoning with them, trying to convince them. Chapter 19 Verse 8, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Chapter 26, verses 25 through 29, Paul is on trial and he says in verse 25, he says, I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. And then in chapter 28, verse 23 of Acts, we read, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of the prophets and of the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening some were being persuaded by the things spoken but others would not believe that is the apostolic pattern the pattern of the early church they attempted to persuade to convince people to believe, and that is our job as well. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. And that means that intellectual rigor is not just the realm of pastors, of theologians, or scholars. It is the sacred responsibility of every believer. Every Christian is to be a scholar of God's word. We are to study it. We are to know it. An intellectually lazy Christian is a disobedient Christian because Jesus said in Matthew twenty two thirty seven, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We are to love the Lord with our mind and so we are disobedient if we are intellectually lazy or slothful. 
2 Timothy 2.15 in the Old King James Version says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We are to study, to be students. We are to love the Lord with our minds. Intellectual rigor is a moral and spiritual imperative for Christians. Well, why? Because Satan, the father of lies, is good at his wicked craft, and we must be prepared to meet him on the field of battle and to overcome his lies with God's truth. And for that, we must put on the full armor of God, and one of the important pieces of the armor of God is the belt of truth, which holds everything else together. That is why Throughout church history, Christians have rightly emphasized education and scholarship and a discipline that we call apologetics, which is defending the faith and making rational and reasonable arguments for what we believe. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. You need to be willing and able and ready to explain your faith very clearly, to defend it and to support it, and then to try to persuade others of it. That is our task, that is our job, to convince, to persuade. Well, graciously, the Lord has given us three powerful tools to use in our attempts to persuade and convince people. And those tools are the external evidence of creation, the internal evidence of consciousness, and the cumulative evidence of credibility. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So let's begin first with the external evidence of creation. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, the scripture makes an assertion. It makes an assertion that Creation is such a powerful test, uh, piece of evidence that people are without excuse if they don't believe. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Now in verse 19, he's mentioning internal evidence. We'll talk about that next. But look at verse 20. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Notice that the Bible asserts that the testimony of creation is compelling and sufficient evidence of the existence, the majesty, and the glory of the creator. It's such compelling evidence that all people are without excuse if they reject the overwhelming evidence provided to them by the external testimony of creation. Psalm 14.1 says, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. There is no excuse for not believing in God because the creation is compelling evidence of its creator. It is such compelling evidence of its creator that scripture says that only a fool will reject it. That is the wording of Psalm 14.1. 
Now, there are three qualities of the creation that provide compelling evidence of its creator. And the first is its design, the design of creation. The incredible complexity and intricacy of creation is compelling evidence that an intelligent mind designed it. You know, if I go home today and I see a bunch of Legos on my dining room table and those Legos are in the shape of a flower, I don't say to Katie, who spilled the Legos? No, no, I know that one of my children, someone with an intelligent mind, arranged all of that to make that flower. From the microscopic to the galactic, from the ecosystem to the solar system, creation shows clear evidence of divine design. And those who deny the existence of God can try to sound intellectual in their denials. They can mock theists all they want and call us idiots and followers of legends and myths or whatever, you know. But they cannot change the fact that what they are proposing is quite simply ridiculous. What is the atheistic worldview propose? Well, it proposes that the effect is greater than the cause. That life arose out of non-life. That nothing produced everything. That chance produces order, not chaos. And that time produces complexity, not entropy. All of which are absurd on their face. Ultimately, atheists are claiming that you can have design without a designer. But which is the more persuasive explanation for the incredible complexity and the incredible intricacy of the universe? Is it more plausible to believe that it was an accident? An accident made by what I call the atheistic trinity. What's the atheistic trinity? Well, they believe in the eternality of matter that time is all-powerful, and that chance is all-wise. They believe in the atheistic trinity, eternal matter, all-powerful time, and all-wise chance, because they believe that matter, time, and chance made everything with all of its complexity. That's infinitely less reasonable to say that than to go home and see Legos arranged in the shape of a flower on a table and say, wow, there must have been an explosion here. The more plausible explanation, of course, is that the universe was created by an eternal, all-powerful, and all-wise, intelligent creator, the triune God who, as Scripture says, in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. So which trinity do you believe in? Everybody believes in a trinity. Do you believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or do you believe in matter, time, and chance? Who is your maker? The obvious design in every single facet of creation is compelling evidence that there is a designer. Creation testifies of the creator. Not only is the design of creation compelling evidence, but the delight of creation is compelling evidence. The beauty and the artistry of creation is compelling evidence of a kind and loving artist. 
1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. And the book of James says that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. God has created these lovely and good things. From the spectacular beauty of a Michigan sunset to the striking colors of tropical fish to the wonders of marital love, creation displays aesthetics and artistry that is clearly intended to bring us happiness, wonder, joy, and delight. The Father is a giver of good gifts. And the atheist has a terrible time explaining away everything beautiful and wonderful in the world as just some fortuitous accident or happenstance of chance. By the way, if an atheist consistently applied his own worldview, it would create a very bleak and miserable life, wouldn't it? Imagine what a consistently atheistic marriage proposal should look like. Now, this is not how atheists live. They, they love. They enjoy beauty. Some of them are phenomenal artists. This is in contradiction to how they live, but this is what a consistently atheistic marriage proposal should sound like. A young man walks up to a young woman and says, with chemicals in my brain motivated solely by survival of the fittest, I am getting down on one knee as part of the mating ritual of our species of mammals to tell you that I'm experiencing a chemical reaction in my advanced primate brain that those less enlightened used to call love. And since our species has been habituated over millions of years to conduct elaborate but meaningless rituals, will you marry me? And... Just like other mammals, often collect shiny things, <laughs> raccoons and others. So I too was drawn to this shiny gold ring, which I now give you, in order and in hope to trigger a chemical reaction in your brain, which might cause you to say yes, so that I can accomplish the great evolutionary goal of passing on my DNA. That, of course, again, is not how atheists actually live. They're kind and loving people. But that's how they should live and should talk if they wanted to be consistent with their worldview. Because the atheistic worldview is ultimately hopeless and meaningless. It is as... Carl Sagan famously said to live on a pale blue dot in an endless expanse of space. The atheist struggles to explain love and beauty, music and art in any sort of meaningful and coherent way. It's hard to have art without an artist, creativity without a creator, or love without a God who is love. And that's, by the way, you'll notice that atheists almost always argue from darkness. They focus on arguing from pain, from evil, and tragedy. Very, very rarely will you hear an atheist argue from beauty, from music, or from love. 
pain, evil, and tragedy make sense in a dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest world where chaos reigns and everything happens by pure chance on this pale blue dot in the midst of endless space. And atheists think that Christians have a problem answering the so-called problem of evil, and so they focus on darkness and evil and tragedy. But what they don't realize is that they have an even bigger problem with what I would call the problem of good the problem of good or the problem of beauty. Atheism cannot account for love, beauty, art, music, and how we experience sunsets. Christianity, on the other hand, has a very straightforward and rational explanation for both good and evil, for both beauty and tragedy. The Christian explanation for the existence of both beauty and suffering in this world is quite straightforward. The world was created by a loving God to be good, beautiful, and full of things that delight the hearts and minds and experiences of his creation. But when we rejected God and followed the devil, the world fell under the curse of sin and depravity. And that's why we see a mixture of good and evil, of beauty and darkness in this fallen world. So the next time an atheist challenges you with the problem of evil, ask him if he can answer the problem of good. God, the great artist, our loving heavenly father has filled this world with things that bring delight to our hearts. God richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, 1 Timothy 6, 17. It's not only the design of creation, not only the delight of creation, which is compelling evidence, but it is the doxology of creation, which is compelling evidence of the creator. The grandeur of creation is designed to cause us to worship. It is designed to leave us in awe of the one who made it. In Psalm chapter 8, The psalmist contemplating creation writes this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength. He says in verse 3, When when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Right? Creation just leaves us in awe. And then in chapter 19 of Psalms, we read, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. He's saying, look, this is testimony which is being given day by day by day and night by night by night, continually all the time, everywhere, to the ends of the earth. And there's no one who hasn't seen it. Day by day and night by night, one night you see the stars, the next a a lightning storm. One day uh, you see this incredibly beautiful bird, the next day a sunset, the next day the light glimmering off the waves. Day by day creation is pouring out speech. It is declaring, it is testifying, it is the canvas testifying to the skill of the great artist. 
the doxology of creation is compelling evidence that is supposed to lead us to worship the one who made it. So the first thing that God uses to convince the unbeliever is the external evidence of creation. By its design, its delight, and its doxological nature, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse, Romans 1.20. Well, not only has God given us, though, the external evidence of creation, he has also given us the internal evidence of consciousness, the internal evidence of consciousness. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read something about human beings that is said about no other created being. In 1, 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then in chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Unlike plants and animals, we were created in the image of God. That means we have a soul, and therefore we have a unique type of consciousness that other created beings do not have. And it is that consciousness which is internal evidence of our creator. We are made in his image. We are a reflection of his grandeur and glory. There's three components of human consciousness that God uses to draw us to himself, and the first is our sense of eternity, our sense of eternity. Human beings have an unshakable sense that this life is not all there is. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has set eternity in their hearts. He's put eternity in our hearts. We have an unshakable sense that this life is not all there is. The second component of human consciousness that God uses to draw us to himself is our experience of emptiness. Because the fall of man into sin separated us from God, who is the source of life and of love, we have a sense of emptiness that can only be filled by the indwelling spirit of God. Solomon was a man who had it all, and he Tried to find meaning in life. He tried to find it in riches, couldn't find it there. Tried to find it in women, couldn't find it there. Tried to find it in pleasure, couldn't find it there. Tried to find it in building and all kinds of things, couldn't find it there. At the end, he concludes, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. The toil under the sun is meaningless. And he keeps that mindset until he finally reaches the right conclusion, which is the meaning of life is to fear God and keep his commandments. We have an emptiness that can only be filled by our creator. Augustine in his confessions famously wrote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our experience of emptiness is designed to lead us to the creator. We've been separated from him by sin that Emptiness is designed, that ache in the soul is designed to lead us to the source of life, the source of love. There's a third component of our consciousness which 
the Lord uses to draw us to himself, and that's our inclination to exaltation. The desire, the inclination, and the need to worship someone or something is deeply embedded in our very nature. We are worshipers by nature, and everyone does worship. It's just a question of who or what they worship. If you doubt this, just spend some time with some junior hires. They adore certain things and certain people in ways maybe that adults mask a little better later on, but at that age it's very blatant, right? They, they're enamored with a celebrity. They want to dress like the celebrity, act like the celebrity. Their greatest dream is to meet the celebrity and to tell the celebrity how wonderful they are. The person into sports that's an athlete Oh, how they would love to just get his signature. To just tell him how, how wonderful it was when he scored that touchdown. We are made to exalt, to praise, to lift up and to worship. And we will do that for someone or something. Go to the middle-aged man with his midlife crisis and watch him waxing his car. You know, I mean, you know, he's on his knees down there before that thing just as much as any ancient person was before an idol of stone. Not saying it's wrong to wax your cars, guys, but, uh, you know, if you're, if when you're done, you kind of want to kiss it and, you know, it's a little, you know. We were made to worship. I want to show you this from Acts chapter 17. Paul is in Athens and it says that he was provoked because the city was full of idols and so he was reasoning with them and he says in verse 22, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects for while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. We were made to worship. So like the Athenians, everyone worships someone or something. Whether the object of worship is an idol, as they were doing, or money, or a politician, or a cause, or an athlete, or a movie star, or an intellectual, or a celebrity, everyone worships, everyone follows Everyone praises and everyone serves someone or something. In his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, Paul David Tripps writes, quote, human beings by their very nature are worshipers. Worship is not something we do. It defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships. It's just a matter of what or whom we serve. So the second thing that God uses to convince the unbeliever is the internal evidence of consciousness. By putting eternity in our hearts, by the experience of emptiness which results from being separated from God by sin, and by the unavoidable desire to exalt someone or something that is inherent in our very nature, God has provided powerful internal evidence to every person. We are made in his image and so the unbeliever himself 
is powerful evidence of his creator. The unbeliever's creativity is a reflection of his creator. His rationality is a reflection of the God of truth. His ability to love is a reflection of the God who is love. And his inescapable sense of moral outrage towards evil is a reflection of the holiness of God. So when an unbeliever asks for evidence of the creator, point him to the crown of God's creation, which is human beings, himself. The unbeliever himself is made in the very image of God, so when he looks for evidence, all he needs to do is look in the mirror. In his creativity, he'll see the creator. In his rationality, he'll see the God of truth. In his love and desire for love, he'll see the God who is love. And in his moral outrage towards evil, he'll see a God who is holy. He is a mirror who's reflecting an eternal glory. He needs to see that image. Not only has God provided the external evidence of creation and the internal evidence of consciousness, he has also provided the cumulative evidence of credibility. The cumulative evidence of credibility. The Christian faith is a credible faith. It is built on credible sources and credible evidence. When Paul was on trial before the Roman governor Festus and the Jewish vassal king Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, he said, quote, I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. What is he saying? He's saying, look, you know, Agrippa, you, you know about all this, because this all happened publicly. The miracles of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension were all seen by large numbers of credible eyewitnesses. That is what John is talking about in John 20, 30 through 31, when he says, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, the Apostle Paul points, first of all, back to the prophecies of Scripture about the Messiah coming to die and to be raised from the dead. And then he talks about his appearances after the resurrection to multiple people in multiple settings, including more than 500 at the same time. And so John writes in 1 John chapter 1, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. Right? We saw it, heard it, touched. And we're telling you so that you can believe as well. Well, someone will say, well, yeah, you're just, you're just reading the Bible. Well, how can I know that the Bible is reliable? Well, first of all, Jesus promised that it would be. In John chapter 14, 
verses 25 and 26, he says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. In chapter 16, verse 13, he says, When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. And then Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The Lord promised that his word would be both inerrant and faithfully preserved. In 2 Timothy 3.16 it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Bible is the most read and the most studied and the best authenticated book in world history. It has more ancient early and numerically massive amounts of manuscript evidence than any other ancient text in the world. And we have manuscript evidence of the Old Testament which indisputably predates the time of Christ. And why is that important? Because it makes the messianic prophecies contained in them absolutely compelling evidence for anyone willing to honestly and objectively consider them. We know with 100% certainty that the book of Psalms and the book of Isaiah, for example, were written centuries before the time of Christ. And we have manuscripts with their full text which predate the time of Christ. Well, what do we read in them? We read exact descriptions of the virgin birth and the ministry and the life and the preaching and the death and the resurrection of the Messiah of Jesus Christ even describing the words and actions of his enemies, what they would do and what they would do in secret. There's just no rational way to explain all of that away as just a coincidence. Daniel predicting the exact timing of the triumphal entry, books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel adding so much, all the other prophets as well. No rational way to explain all of that away as just a coincidence the internal and the external evidence attesting to the veracity of Holy Scripture is simply overwhelming. As we noted earlier, as ambassadors of Christ, our job is to persuade people to turn from sin to the Savior. And the Lord has graciously given us a truly a mountain of credible evidence for our message. And it is the cumulative effect of that mountain of evidence which is so persuasive. Just a 
small sampling of that can be seen in Josh McDowell's classic 760-page book called New Evidence That Demands a Verdict. We're going to end here for today. We're going to pick up next week with looking at three categories of that cumulative credible evidence. We're going to look at logic, the credibility of Christian logic. We're going to look at the credibility of the Christian lifestyle. And we're going to look at the credibility of Christian love. And then we'll go on to talk about the second and third strategies that the Lord uses, which is to convict people of sin and then to call them to the cross, to the church, and to the commission. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful you have truly given us a a mountain of evidence. Creation testifies of the creator. Our own consciousness testifies of the one who made us, for we are made in your image. And there is a cumulative and credible mountain of evidence that all points to you, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. Lord, I want to pray for lost souls. I want to pray for those who have been deceived by the lies of the devil, whose minds have been blinded by Satan. The light of truth is all around them, and they can't see it because Satan has blinded their minds. Oh, God, open their eyes. We know that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven unless they're born again. You, O God, must rescue from spiritual death. You, O Lord, must free from spiritual blindness. You, O Lord, must free us from the terrible effects which sin has on the mind, twisting our minds, turning us into depraved minds that suppress the truth and unrighteousness. O God, you must save, you must rescue. And so I pray that you would open blinded eyes and hearts and Grant them, O God, the eternal life which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. May today be the day they repent and believe the good news. And it is truly good news, and that is why we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.